Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Vet Gurus Podcast. It's Brendan here with Mark. I'm going to be short and sharp, Mark, with the introductions and the contacts at vetgurus at gmail.com and vetgurus.com to look at the website and do a bit of a search for previous episodes and you can search on topics there and it will pull up all the topics. If you're into chickens, search for chickens and it will pull up all the podcasts that will have mention of chickens or chooks in there. And also send us an email at thevetgurus at gmail.com because we're always after more friends, aren't we, Mark? We always need more friends. So we're going to make this one pretty short and sharp and, and punchy, Mark. You always say to me, make it more punchy. You're waffling on. So I'm going to cross over to you, Mark, and you can be punchy. Well, it is important for us to be punchy, Brendan. We have, at some stages during the vast number of podcasts we've put out, been told that um, we, that we are waffling, that, you know, that maybe we've been partaking of too much alcohol and just been waffling on with nonsense. But um, I think today, I think we're just going to go straight for the jugular. We're going to go straight into... News items, I think, Mark, and I'm going to take the first one because this one's about a couple, about one particular person, but a, 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 an acquaintance of mine. I'd love to say she's a friend, but certainly an acquaintance, and that is Lee Berger, who has just won the Australian PM Prime Minister's Life Scientist Award for 2018 to a and um, I've known Lee for many, many years. In fact, Lee was, I can't remember whether I've told you this, Mark, Lee was I think one year behind me at vet school at Melbourne University. So I've known Lee and I've followed her stellar career from afar for a fair while. And, and Lee with her co- colleague, um, Lee Healy. So Lee Berger, who has won the award, um, is female. And Lee Skerritt, who um, is her partner in life as well as in research, um, are both called Lee. And um, just a, a bit of trivia you don't need to know, but uh, I think it's interesting. We used to call them He Lee and She Lee at, at university. That's how they were named. So if somebody was looking for one of the Lees, they'd say, do you want um, He Lee or do you want She Lee? Um, and they've um, done some fantastic work, and 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 Lee and um, or the two Lees, um, especially Sheila Lee Berger, discovered and um, spent has spent most of her life since um, the nineteen um, late nineteen nineties, I think, or the early nineteen nineties, studying the mass extinctions of frogs. Mark, and as you know. She um, pushed very hard to say, look, this is a chytrid fungus. It's a fungus that's causing the, the ex, uh, ex, these mass extinctions of these species of frogs worldwide, not just in Australia. And initially, there was a lot of scepticism and they said, no, it can't be something as, as obvious as that or as simple as that now that they know it is that particular fungus. And, um, yeah, so she's the person who discovered it and it's fantastic to see that she's 
been um, awarded the Frank Fenner Prize for the Life Scientist of the Year 2018. So well deserved, and um, I feel very proud of Lee um, that I have a have a little bit of a connection. Um, um, I wish some of her brains rubbed off on me, Mark. Um, that's all I can say. <laughs> yes, but um, you know, isn't it uh, extraordinary, Brendan? Isn't it just outstanding that we have like this is a person who who um, went against the grain and discovered the cause of um, the cause of these. F- amphibian mass extinctions um, and we've had what I don't know what it is six or seven species just in Australia go extinct um, as a result of this disease I don't know what the number is around the world but if we hadn't got a grasp of what was going on um, then we could have had you know amphibian species wiped out um, on mass and um, so Australians lead the world in so many ways. There's heroes in so many fields that don't get celebrated routinely, um, and it is pleasing to see Lee get her due credit. And the the follow-on from that, Mark, is that both the Lees were working at James Cook University in Townsville, and they just recently announced that they have left uh, the JCU University and they are coming down to Melbourne University. So they'll be based down at Werribee, um, closer to where I am, and I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with both of them. And it's a big win to have both of those researchers down here in Melbourne. It's fantastic. So, But, yeah, um, great to see a win in it. a well-deserved prize, Mark. So you've got something probably almost as important um, and it's something about our little furred friends that fly and what's that mark those in the know call it feathers brendan ah oh yes i do yes um i I should have um maybe i should have stopped it for um four beers before the podcast started mark um i wish i could blame it on that (laughs) um i was thinking about one of our um the the previous news stories that the um uh, fur or feather one that we um recorded recently so yes i'll leave that in there because as we all know, I am very fallible, Mark, and I'm I'm proud to wear that label. I, I think your vulnerability makes you attractive, Brendan. So it's, oh, I think I'm, I'm I'm glad you're not sitting next to me here, Mark, because um, um, I just don't want some of your lipstick on my exactly, cheek at the moment. Exactly. Um, my my story. It, it, it's one of our favourite. Uh, um, sources, the Mother Nature Network, and um, it's a story that I uh, am attracted to because um, I am very interested in, um, you know, the uh, the family of birds, the swifts and swallows, and um, I have in uh, had some fun in Southeast Asia looking at the the uh, the birds that make the nest that's used for bird nest soup and the the whole. Uh, um, culture of uh, building places for those birds to nest, and this is a—it's an allied sort of story in in uh, the Piedmont Park Conservancy um, uh, in Atlanta. Um, there's a, a chimney tower, um, a, a significant chimney tower that's been built recently, um, but it's not attached to any um, fire or or you know uh, providing any uh, ventilation. Um, it's specifically designed as a nesting and roosting site for chimney swifts, um, as everything does these days. It's got a very cool name, the Exhibitat. I wonder which um, 
I wonder how many people were sitting in on that meeting, Brendan, that came up with that yes. name. <laughs> wonder what they were paid. Um, anyway, it was um, uh, unveiled on the t- September twenty fifth um, during uh, Georgia Grows Native Goes uh, Grows Native for Birds Month, um, and um, and it's interesting that uh, as chimneys uh, become uh, less common, um, there are less and less places for these birds to um, to nest. And so people are now uh, starting to uh, build, I suppose, artificial chimneys. Um, they are under specific pressure because they're um, mosquito eaters. And so as we poison mosquitoes with insecticides, um, they are directly affected either uh, by the poison um, itself, as those mosquitoes move less quickly and are more easily uh, eaten, or even worse, uh, there's no mosquitoes for them to eat. Um, and so uh, having lots of chimneys and lots of chimney swifts are a much more effective uh, um, uh, control of mosquitoes. So having the the locations for suitable nesting habitat to have the birds around. And they would normally in the wild use old hollow trees, but of course um, all the, you know, as we well know, all the old hollow trees have been chopped down um, and so the swifts have uh, adapted to nesting inside masonry chimneys. Um, So uh, I think that um, it might, well, we've got two chimneys on our house, Brendan, and we actually do have some birds that nest in those, um, the Indian hill miner, and uh, I've got to get up and pull those nests out. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we don't have chimney swifts here in Australia, but if we did, um, then I would be more than happy to have those guys nest in our chimney. Mm, so do you, you don't light up your chimneys? Oh, we've got um, three and one of them we don't. We use two. Hmm. So looking at this, what do you think of this fancy-looking chimney, the Exhibitat? They have a little video of, of making it, and to me it just looks like a little rectangular box that they just just uh, screwed together. It doesn't look anything <laughs> particularly you fancy so, to me, Mark. You are so hard to impress, Brendan. I'm I'm a little bit um, I'm a little bit on edge today, as you'll see with the next story that I'm about to jump into as well, Mark. But yes, um, so how many did they just do one of this? I, I, I must admit I haven't completely read to the end of this particular article, Mark. Did they did they just build one of these this um, chimney swift towers? Yes. This story, this story, um, yeah, one specific one. But it's a there are a num- a large number of these uh, being put up in various locations around the US to. Um, to uh, encourage people to to actually build them on private property, uh, how to be a good swift landlord is an article that um, you can find on chimneyswifts.org. Um, and this is, uh, you know, I may sound like I'm being a bit uh, uh, lighthearted about this, but it is a um, maintaining these species in relatively high numbers uh, is the most effective way to um, to keep they. they Eat thousands of mosquitoes each day, and so um, their 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 voracious appetites keep those pests in control in a natural way. Brendan, yes, although the cynic in me says that you know what's going to happen with some of these. There'll be some people deciding they want to go out camping for a weekend, and they just uh, pitch their tent and they just. 
happen to be close to one of these little chimney-looking things and they build their fire underneath <laughs> that little chimney there. And I say, gee, that works well as a chimney um, for our little campfire here. And, and away you go and our poor little, poor little birdies um, uh, are um, evicted from their exhibitat, Mark. So yes, um, no, uh, yes, no. I'm being very cynical, but um, I, I think it's it's a it's an interesting proof of concept, isn't it, Mark? I think, and and by the look of it, and I've just clicked over to that site you mentioned, chimneyswift.org, was it? Um, they have they have the plans there, don't they? And they have a little video of the construction of them for the, those people who want to to build the little. Um, chimney habitats for these little birdies so yeah how fake chimneys can help save birds was the title of that one mark yes my one's um a little um probably just as important and that's um why we should get rid of leaf blowers mark oh i do not like leaf blowers and it's been a while since i got a little bit angry and i'm a bit angry about this because yeah i do not like leaf blowers i think leaf blowers and leaf blowies if we call the people who use them um they're a little bit like Oh, what do we call them? The the hoons of the of the sea. Um, who, people who who um, ride. What are they called? Jet the, skis. Um, jet skis. You know, I I, th- I think, and and I reckon if you did a survey, there'd be a high correlation between people who own a jet ski and and having leaf blowers at home as well. Mark, just quietly, we need to do a bit of a study on that. So, but somebody did do a study on leaf blowers, demonstrating Mark that they do more harm than good. And we've got some hard facts here, Mark, that I'd like to run through with you. They took two leaf blowers, the classic Ryobi four-stroke and the Echo two-stroke, and they compared them to two different cars, Mark, two vehicles, a 2011 Ford F-150 Raptor truck and a 2011 Fiat 500, Mark. And it was pretty obvious that the leaf blowers emitted more harmful particles into the air than the vehicles did. So I was um, quite impressed with that. Um, and quoting from the little study they did there, it's, it's only a, it's only a you know a, a limited a limited little study there to equal the hydrocarbon emissions of about half an hour of yard work with the two-stroke leaf blower. You'd have to drive the Raptor for three thousand eight hundred eighty-seven miles edmunds.com writes or the distance from northern texas to anchorage <laughs> so there you go two two and a half or no half an hour of yard work is equivalent of driving one of these cars from northern texas to anchorage alaska so um so the concerns are yes that they're bad for the environment so the emissions there of the leaf blowers and these are obviously the petrol driven ones i know there are some electric driven ones which are more environmentally friendly and they're certainly friendlier as far as the, the noise because the obvious thing that people worry about and, and are obviously concerned about is that leaf blowers can be bad for your hearing. And reading through the article, the decibel level may be reduced as the sound travels, but it can still cause damage if the noise is prolonged. Even at 800 feet away, the decibel level from a leaf blower can be in the 50 decibel range, Mark. So they're loud. They're loud. And the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention track leaf blowers at around about 90 decibels, which is and about two hours of exposure to that. If you, if you don't have earplugs in, would be the equivalent of um, 
enough, well more than enough actually, to damage your ears. Um, and the final bit, which was interesting, and I, I think they needed to add a, a fourth comment or a fourth part to this, was that do you need to blow these um, leaves anyway, um, that you should be mulching your leaves instead of just blowing them onto the onto the driveway and then into the gutters and down the drains. Um, I'd also think that, you know, what are we doing with our little bugs and our critters um, by blowing all these leaves away and just not letting them naturally mulch? And we're, we're damaging the ecosystem, Mark, aren't we? We're destroying um, things by... So leaf blowers are bad in a lot of ways and... Um, uh, if any of my neighbours are listening to this, and we've got a couple <laughs> who do have leaf blowers, Mark, and um, I'm going to have a peek over the back fence and see whether they've got a jet ski in the backyard as well because <laughs> I'm sure I'll see one there. Um, it's um, it's something that they shouldn't be using. So I don't like leaf blowers, Mark, so I hope you're not going to tell me that you do have a leaf blower. I've, I have got to be honest, Brendan, and say that um, uh, I um, don't have one but Kate does, and she loves it. It is an electric one, and she would it um, with our, um, you know, with our solar uh, power that we have. So we do have environmentally friendly aspects to it, and it is pretty quiet, and it does make it very happy. So I, I, I accept the the petrol different driven ones are monsters of creation, and probably do correlate with um jet ski riders, but um. I'm not about to ask Kate to give up her her, uh, her environmentally friendly one. It's a trade-off, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> it's it's keeping your other half happy um, or suffering the consequences, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. So there's. I'm feeling a lot better though now that I've vented about that. So you, you um, were yeah. you were you were remarkably controlled, Brent. I expected you know there to be thunderclaps and lightning and and all sorts of uh, soapbox uh, noise and angst but you you were you were organized and excited to be controlled but uh, your argument with i was impressed good i was going to make a silly joke about um, blowing um, blowing something up um, somewhere else but um, let's go on to the fourth article which is which I think we had a little chat about this before we um, commenced the podcast, Mark, didn't we, off air? And um, it made us both feel uplifted and yet um, downtrodden at the same time. No, inspired it? and inadequate at the same time. Yes. I know, I know. This is the um, the uh, National Geographic's um, uh, uh, wildlife photo competition um, and the winning series of photographs, um, which are just like... They're just delicious. They're gorgeous photographs, um, and they are—they, uh, um, I don't know—they just—they uh, are inspirational. Um, I particularly like the um, the hellbender. Um, that's a, a photo that really uh, um, I, I can um, see the effort, and um, uh, often the 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 time and the setting up and the understanding of the behavior of the animals, all these things that um, uh, must be included and must be understood to really appreciate the, the, uh, the, the how significant these photos are. They're not just happy snaps. And, um, and that hellbender one, that tells a story to me, Brendan, it reaches out. And um, they're all, you know, none of them are... Um, None of them are photographs that you would um, you would just uh, uh, look past without being just 
moved. They're works of art. Um, I did, I, you and I also had a particular talk about the wasp one, the uh, mud dauber wasps, and the um, technically the very narrow depth of field and the likelihood of being able to trap an image like that as sharp as the photographer has. Um, the the uh, the other thing that um, did really um, uh, and the, and I've got to say this, Brendan, the the uh, really special thing about these images was is that they are um, they're works of art. They go beyond just uh, demonstrating a, a an image of an animal or plant or part of the wilderness or whatever. They actually uh, are aesthetically pleasing. They tell a story. They um, inspire um, emotions, and none more so than the uh, the photograph of the the uh, the um, macaque in Indonesia. Um, uh, the, the one of the uh, finalists in the suburban wildlife, the urban wildlife section. Um, so I commend everyone get on online link to the story. One of the other interesting aspects of those photographs, Brendan, is that um, uh, for the first time, I think the um, there's been a preponderance of teenage um, entries, and and we did uh, spend a bit of time looking at uh, the photograph of uh, the jaguar, I believe, um, uh, yes. that was just um, oh, just such a uh, resting on a log. Um, contemplating the world, a beautiful photograph by um, uh, one of the teenage entrants. And I also think that um, our own Australian uh, uh, Robert Owens, Steve Owens' son, uh, got an honourable mention in this competition. Um, so um, there is a, an increasing number of young people who are uh, taking up the art of wildlife photography and, um, and these awards certainly highlighted that, Brendan. Yeah, they were magnificent, weren't they? That and that a great range of of of, of topics and and categories um, that they that they have in that. So I was quite impressed with the types of categories, like young photographers, the year, photojournalism type um, photography, macro photography, and yeah. So just go to our website vetgoos.com and click on this episode, and then it will have links to the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards 2018, Mark. So I'm hoping one day I'll see one of your picks up there, Mark, um, the way your um, the quality of your photos have been um, rising over the last um, 12 months have been stellar. Um, have been amazing. Um, and rise yet before. Um, these are, oh. they're, 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 they're in a league of their own, these Images there, and and like we said at the beginning, the the um they're inspirational, but they they're almost they almost make you think. There you go, that's how it's done, and I'm never going to be able to do it. So why am I even bothering? <laughs> yes, although as we were discussing a couple of them, you, you look at them and they're almost um, portraiture type shots that gee, it would have taken a lot of time and a lot of effort and and potentially a lot of gear as well um, with the lighting with some of these, even though they're located um, outside, hence the term wildlife um, photography. Um, so, um, yeah, a lot more technical than um, than you'd think by looking at it, but they are fantastic photos, yeah. So I think we should jump on to it now that we've um, we've lost the plot and we are not punchy, Mark, um, and we've, we've just slowly descended into our usual babble. Um, we should 
jump into our main topic and you selected this main topic, Mark, and it is FLUTD. What does that stand for? Well, it's um, it's one of many acronyms we could have chosen for this disease. Um, people will know it uh, by other ones as well, feline idiopathic cystitis or uh, feline neurologic syndrome. But um, the one we've chosen to run with today is feline lower urinary tract disease. Um, and in the acronym-rich world in which we live, um, that becomes fluted. So um, we've just had a case of, um, of this today, Brendan. Brought, come into the hospital, um, a cat that uh, presented uh, um, straining to urinate. Um, and uh, the, the problem in the case that I saw was that... Um, that uh, the owner wasn't sure whether the cat was straining to urinate or straining to defecate, and the cat was actually presented um, for investigation of um, constipation, um, but um, but it was in fact uh, um, strangurea or dysuria. Um, once we did have the cat in hospital for a few hours this morning, and uh, it uh, did pass some urine, there was blood in it, clear. Uh, blood, um, but obviously many of these cats will only have traces of blood due to the inflammation in the reproductive tra- uh, the the urinary tract. And um, uh, but this particular case, you could clearly see the blood, Brendan. Yes. So I suppose what we should go through, like we usually do, is is work through this particular condition, or you know, I t- you know, I, I often sort of refer it to a syndrome sometimes to my clients rather than a disease process, and and I think that sort of is my slant on the the uh, you know those causes that we'll talk about and and, and the predisposing um, stress sort of conditions with them. So, what sort of signs do we see, Mark, with these um, classically, apart from the one that you saw today? What 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 may it present with? What is what is a client going to ring up to the clinic and say? That you might think, gee, this is a, a fluted cat. A fluted cat. We've got yes. we've got the title now, Brendan. Um, <laughs> the um, the, besides uh, um, blood in the urine and uh, straining to urinate, um, the cats will often go in unusual locations. They'll um, because it's uncomfortable. They um, associate the discomfort with the place that they would normally go to the toilet because every time they go there, it hurts. So they'll often. Um, uh, urinate in unusual locations um, and they'll often overgroom that area. You'll often uh, hear the people saying that they're licking their privates excessively um, and um, and they may vocalise those general signs of discomfort. They may vocalise more and uh, and just be trying to attract the the, uh, the attention of uh, their owners a little bit more. Um, I do have to mention that um, that a very small percentage of these cats, uh, particularly the young males, will progress to urinary blockage, which becomes um, a uh, veterinary emergency and uh, and can, in extreme circumstances, lead to the death of an animal. Um, but the most of the ones that uh, that we get to see are um, are not obstructed um, and but are, are still straining to go to the toilet, Brendan. Yes, and I think we're the same. I know we spoke off air that you probably see a lot more of these than me just because of the size of your clinic. And I think at, at, I, we have exactly the same thing. A large percentage of them are, are non-obstructive, but it's a, 
what you need to concentrate on when you first get that animal in is is one of the first things is to decide do we have an obstructed cat on our hands or do we not and what's your simple what's your quick and dirty approach to these when they first come in trying to decide we need to worry about this animal and get this cat in straight away or that we can start thinking about that maybe one of these cats that has a bit of strangurea or dysuria, it's straining and it's licking its private parts, as you mentioned, um, and we can do a bit more softly, softly approach to it. Well, this is one of those situations, um, a skill, a veterinary skill that I've been trying to cultivate my entire professional life um, is to be better at palpating the abdomen of animals. Um, and um, and this is certainly one that I get to practice my skills on. I think abdominal palpation, um, you will definitely feel the uh, turgid uh, enlarged bladder of a blocked cat. Um, and in addition, the cats are massively discomforted when you do feel that. So those cats that are obstructed, um, they are clearly in pain. And when you palpate them, um, you can feel the, the, um, the enlarged and, uh, uh, overly full bladder. Um, and, um, and that usually distinguishes them pretty effectively. So the cats that come in, uh, with, difficulty urinating uh, but they're not blocked um, they often have um, often no bladder they'll still be straining to urinate but um, I'll be struggling to feel anything but the very smallest of bladders because they're continually making an effort to empty it Brendan yes so our basic workup for these, Mark. What um, um, this is turning into a, a Brendan quizzes, Mark. Um, <laughs> what version again, isn't it, Mark? But that's that's okay. You you can cope with it, can't you? Um, so what's it, what's your standard workup for these? Um, well, I often, uh, you know, I, you know, I love using my diagnostic modalities, um, and I always enjoy whacking the ultrasound on or um, cracking a few. Uh, x-ray films. Um, but most of the time with these ones, once I've done a good thorough physical examination and I'm happy that the cat's not obstructed, um, I really want to obtain a urine sample. Um, and uh, and obviously, if I've got, you know, if the blood is almost empty, empty I'm not going to be able to um, uh, get a sterile sample via cystocentesis. So I'm often setting the cat up for a short period of time in hospital um, in the circumstance where I hope that it will go to the toilet um, so that I can get a sample. I, uh, not part of my, um, you know, um, minimum database, um, but as part of that initial um, step, I, I definitely... Uh, get these animals hooked up to a catheter. They, um, the pain and discomfort they're going through often leaves them, they may not be technically dehydrated, but they're likely to be at the uh, dehydrate, dehydrated end of the normal range of the state of hydration. So just um, making sure that they're well hydrated and that, um, and that uh, their urine is suitably dilute making it less likely to concentrate those uh, uh, minerals that are likely to produce the struvite crystals which constitute part of the irritation. Um, so oftentimes we're getting them in, trying to get a urine sample and getting them onto fluid. Yes, and you mentioned analgesia or, or that they they are in obvious discomfort, even the, these ones that are, are not obstructed. What, what choices would you suggest as far as that um, initial analgesic? 
selection, Mark, for these well, guys. I, I, this is going to sound awful, Brendan, but I love my opioids in this particular circumstance. Um, I know that many people do use um, uh, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in these circumstances, but um, I'm just a... N said weenie when it comes to the urinary tract, and um, and so I do avoid them. So, um, the while the opioids are not um, anti-inflammatory in any way, um, the analgesia they they uh, cause, and a little bit of the you know um, sedation and muscle relaxation that's associated with that often is of significant benefit for the uh, for a cat in this situation. And particularly if they're in hospital for half a day or a day, um, that, uh, that anxiolytic effect that the, um, the opioids provide, um, that can be a considerable advantage. I know we did talk about um, uh, maybe one of the um, less direct evidence-based forms of anti-inflammatory medication well, I don't know how do how do we classify it? We for lots of these cats, we will give them a dose of pentasan polysulfate. The logic being um, that the the inner mucoid layer of the you know the the over the transitional epithelium um, has a lot of those glycosamine glycans, the GAG type molecules, which are also the the uh, molecules that are in joints um, and at least theoretically there's and, and in humans research shows there's a significant derangement in those uh, molecules um, in the humans that have idiopathic cystitis which is an analogous um, uh, condition in humans and so I think there is at least some logic to um, using drugs like cartrophin and uh, pentasan in these circumstances Brendan Yes, so and and I agree. I do I do the same, and I think I try and um, I think if we yeah we'll, we'll step back one little bit and 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 we did speak before we <laughs> when we did our little our very minor prep um, for this subject about separating these fluted cats between um, two broad categories, I suppose, isn't it, Mark? The ones that um, um, need, we're worrying about urinary tract infection and and or obstruction of that bladder where we need to get in and, and, and unblock things and even potentially go in and, and consider doing removing um, bladder stones. And we'll chat a little bit about diets as well if we have time with, with the dissolution diets for these animals and differentiating that that cat between that one and the one that is the idio- classic idiopathic cat um, that is, um, and we should get onto that point, that this particular cat now, um, which is just sort of almost like what a stress response, isn't it, Mark? And that's when I, I usually dig into um, the history of that cat at home and, and try and work out what's happening with the cat and in its environment and the family there is there stressors on that particular cat that's somehow set off this idiopathic version of this condition in them and um, that's when we talk about these other 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 methods of trying to control it long term do you do you sort of head down that sort of rabbit hole um, with these cases mark and do you differentiate do you do you sort of try and differentiate them into those those classic UTI um, slash more severely blocked ones and and the supposed idiopathic cause definitely Brendan just like you we make that um, distinction although we 
it is always a, a cause for celebration when we uh, take when we get finally get our urine sample. That's a cause for celebration. But when we run that sample and we find um, white cells and uh, um, bacteria in large numbers, um, that really is. I don't. I only think you know the the studies suggest that only three or four percent of uh, urinary tract problems in cats are infectious. Uh, but geez, it. Um, it always makes us feel quite good when we identify that and we can treat that. Uh, but we do look to um, be much more aggressive with those that are obstructed or uh, likely to have stones. Um, we want to treat those aggressively where I do think um, we can take our time, be a little bit more uh, relaxed and, as you, um, make it a bit of a challenge to find the stressor in that cat's life because there's always one. Um, uh, there always is... Uh, New cat in the neighbourhood, a cat that's uh, um, that 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 um, the cat in question may not even come into contact with, uh, may just have an altered olfactory environment, and um, and then that uh, changes their stress levels and leads to these problems. So I think doing a bit of Sherlock Holmes work, trying to uh, tease that out, find out whether the uh, new boyfriend's moved in or um, uh, whether dad's lost his job. Moved out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, yes, absolutely. So I, so I think the, the key there is not, and I think some some inexperienced vets or, or, or maybe some new graduates tend to jump in and see a cat that is straining and it has FLUTD signs, has fluted signs, and it is passing bloody urine and they jump in straight away and put that animal on antibiotics. And I think it's a real key point, which you sort of hinted at, Mark, they're getting, getting that urine sample and analysing it. Um, so if we look at that urine sample, Mark, we're seeing red blood cells in there. So um when do we decide that we need to start thinking about maybe we need to throw this animal on antibiotics? Um, well, most of the samples... What else do we look for? Well, most of the samples we get are free catch samples. So there's often a low number of um, uh, bacteria, you know, um, that may be from the the um, uh, prep use. So um, the samples that we collect and, um, and in order not to stress or further inflame the uh, urinary tract. We are waiting till most of the time until the cat passes some, um, and so we have a special series of uh, trays we reserve for this purpose. We have impervious, um, uh, non-absorbent litter that the cats can scratch around, um, and then we uh, get our sample. What we're looking for in that sample um, is not just the presence of bacteria, because everyone can see through my description that uh, that we're going to get some bacteria in that system, um, but we want to see uh, white cells and we want to see, if at all possible, large numbers of bacteria. And um, the, uh, the, you know, ace in the hole is... Uh, bacteria within the the um, cellular structure of those neutrophils. Yes, so a pyuria we've got going on there and they're the ones that we then start thinking of, of taking that next step and the ideal there is sending off a, a sterile sample there for a culture and sensitivity and the, perhaps commencing some antibiosis um, while we're waiting for those results there. Mark, if you're going to pick up a an antibiotic while you're waiting for your culture results with that one that you've confirmed it has a, a urinary tract infection there, Mark, what will you choose? Well, we're almost, I can give you even 
we I've had a look at this with our cases, Brendan, uh, um, and um, this, the overwhelming majority of the bacteria that we culture in our cats are um, coliform bacteria, um, and there is a very high, well in the 90s percent likelihood that they'll be uh, susceptible to uh, clavulanate and amoxicillin. So that's generally our first choice. Yes, well, it's, uh, I think it's pretty similar to what, what I'd be picking up off the shelf initially, although I haven't probably done as detailed uh, analysis as you have with all the all the cats that you see. Um, and I, I think one other comment I'd like to make as we're going along is is that the, remembering most of these cats that are the younger ones are the ones that are increasingly, um, percentage-wise, they're the ones that are more likely to be the idiopathic cystitis-type um, conditions. And then the older cats, um, I usually think about ones that are, that are you know, over 10 years of age or so, they're the ones that I'm more likely to consider that they may have non-idiopathic causes, so they're probably more likely to be the urinary tract infections or the uroliths cause in the fluted um, condition with them. Do you do you, would you agree with that, yeah, Mark? That's definitely. It's not an absolute rule, but definitely a pattern that the um, that three uh, or four percent that have an infection are um, are. Uh, less likely to be male and less likely to be young. So these ones that are those younger ones that we um, do the work up and we don't see any obvious um, urinary tract infection going on, man. What's your approach then to that treatment moving forward? You've you've stabilised it, or you've had you've you, you've had it in the clinic for half a day. You've given it some pain relief. You've you've got a decent sample um, of, of urine from it, and you've you're fairly confident that it has um, the idiopathic um, form of the the cystitis or urinary tract. Um, inflammation what's um what's your home care what are you sending this this cat home with and what are you chatting to the owners about well we're we're talking to them about a lot of adjustments to the cat's environment there are a certain number of them that we will send home with um uh um medication to decrease their anxiety so drugs like amitriptyline um we'll also use uh, antispasmodics. I don't tend to, um, I know that it's been published uh, for drugs like acepromazine to be used in this circumstance, but I'm not a big fan of sending um, ace home and particularly with cats. So um, we tend, we do use um, uh, some diazepam in some instances and, uh, um, and on occasions phenoxybenzamine to provide relief to the spasm, the painful spasm of the urethra. Um, so uh, those uh, medications might go home with them. But as you hinted, it is a longer-term management plan that we want to make the poor cat feel more comfortable about urinating more frequently. Um, we want to make sure that uh, they've got m many litter access to litter trays, much access to litter trays so they can go frequently. We want to see them increase their water intake. Um, we want them to have wetter food um, and uh, we probably will talk about the, the um, you know, there's f uh, particular brands of food that are designed to assist uh, by manipulating micronutrients in the diet. Um, and I think they're a good thing, but I think it's much more important to make sure the cats are getting increased water um, and uh, and uh, making sure that um, that those foods are wet is critical. But also um, uh, um, 
increasing their water turnover by encouraging them to drink more. So uh, we all know that uh, cats love drinking moving water. And so there's an, I know there's a, a few v- uh, devices on the market now that um, that effectively are bubblers for cats and uh they're well recognised to increase the amount of water they drink. So they're the sorts of things that we're trying to put in place, Brendan. Yes, and it's and it's providing, there's a term that I read somewhere, providing multimodal environmental modification, Mark, and I think that summarises it quite well. So that's providing, and, and we mentioned briefly before we started this um, podcast, um, you mentioned about litter boxes, um, making sure that we have an adequate number and at least one more litter box and the number of cats in there. So if you had one cat, you'd have at least two litter boxes. And I'd probably consider having having three or four if we had one of these cats that is suffering from this condition. And and providing them on different levels, these these litter boxes, and, and in obviously different areas and different rooms. And also experimenting with different litter because some cats just do not like to use certain litter even though they talk about cats preferring unscented or cl- and clumping litter but giving them several choices marks so choices within um, different types of litter boxes and areas where they might be on a platform or, or hidden away um, near the corner of a room for instance and and also the same with all the the actual the rest of the environmental enrichment to provide that multimodal environmental modification with with lots of play areas and resting areas scratching poles and and all those other bits and pieces you get climbing platforms and and lots of toys for them so trying to make a nice happy environment for that for that stressed cat um and try and um, reverse those changes whatever set it off with that initial stressy period there mark yeah um you mentioned nutritional management mark so apart from adding moisture to the food to try and increase that water content to um therefore flush out the kidneys and get a bit more urine passing through there what um what are your thoughts as far as specific nutritional recommendations or diets for these so th- um, do you do you put all of these on the therapeutic um, veterinary diets or do you just suggest generally what what um, what sort of diets do you suggest for the clients for these cases to be honest Brendan I, I in the first instance I, I don't recommend that they go on to diets um, I have had a couple of instances where we have put uh, cats on to the um the diets, the most, the diets that are going to control struvite in particular, um, and the cats not eat them, and so then you get a whole bunch of other complications if they've got um, urinary tract problems and they're anorexic. Um, so in the first instance, we're we're sort of encouraging people to stick with the things that the cat is familiar with and try and manage all those. Uh, well, I, I don't know whether I entirely like the multimodal description, but. I suppose it fits them, but um, try and manage all those first. We definitely do um, in uh, cats that relapse, we definitely uh, work to change their diet and we use one of those commercial um, uh, uh, urinary diets from one of the manufacturers. Um, but um, that, but they're certainly not our first, uh, our first line defence to this uh, syndrome. Yes. Well, I, I agree totally with that. I mean, it's I always push for trying to trying to get that um, water intake and potentially changing from those dry diets to the to a mix of the wet and the dry and the dry. Um, so the canned food and the dry diets, and and doing those little tricks with those 
with those little water fountains. You've got me um, intrigued, Mark. Is there a particular brand you recommend or a, t- a type that you recommend with these little water fountains for the for the little caddies? And doesn't it want you want um, if you had one of those little water fountains in your house? Do you have one for your cats? No, we don't. Mark? Because I, I just have a feeling <laughs> I can that I'm going to pee all day um, if that was running <laughs> all the time. Um, yes. So, well, we should cover um, the, the second part of what um, we were going to talk about with these um, particular conditional syndrome in cats in the obstructed ones, Mark. So what do you do? What's your approach to these obstructed ones? And don't just say we unobstruct <laughs> them. Um so where do you most commonly find the obstruction with them in the urinary Well, tract? it's um, it's usually it's though not always. Um, that uh, when I first uh, uh, graduated and um, started work, my boss always told me that they would you know write down at the um, at the tip of the the uh, penis in um, young male cats where the um, Oz penis narrowed the uh, urethra down and so um, if there was anything passing down the urethra that was the limiting point and where things tended to lodge and certainly that's the most frequent location um, and uh, and very often the spot that we have to deal with but um, we definitely have a number of other locations further up that um, we've found little crud uh, the struvite mixed into a matrix of mucus and um, inflammatory cells and concreted into a little rock um, and uh, wedged into the urinary tract and stopping the flow. Um, But generally, we find them at the tip of the cat's penis. And it's good when you get those ones, Mark, because you can use the toothpaste technique, of course, (laughs) um, to um, remove that obstruction with the ones where you've just got that little gritty gritty mess there. So what's your tips with, so we anaesthetise this cat um, or do we just heavily sedate it for passing the catheter? What's your, what's your method? i both, but I've got to say that there's, um, there's many factors which make me want to anaesthetise these cats completely. Um, it is... Uh, it's really, really uncomfortable, and um, and of course, it's very delicate work, and you are, you don't want them to be moving at all. And there is the temptation, I think, um, because many of these cats, you know, the the cost of um, anaesthetizing them in an emergency situation and then monitoring them for two or three or four or five days after it um, creates a significant invoice, and so our People do have a tendency to go, oh, we'll save someone that invoice by sedating the cat and not anaesthetizing it. I genuinely believe that to be a false economy um, and, you know, more likely to lead to damage to the urethra or um, uh, a longer period of time before you are able to uh, um, move that obstruction and clear the flow. Yes. How many of... So, so I was just going to summarise that. I do anaesthetise them. Yes. Well, so do I. I always think it's easier just to just to knock them out, and then you don't have to don't have to worry that if if you haven't sedated it heavily enough, that that little little pussy cat there's there's struggling a bit, or, or we're getting that um, more more urethral spasm because it isn't um, completely knocked out there. When you are catheterising them. Um, do you flush, do you sort of pre-flush and what are you popping up that little penis or urethra there first before you pop the well, catheter the, in? Well, the, the, um, the 
trick that everyone probably already knows we're teaching them to suck eggs um, is a tiny bit of local anesthetic. I find that is just the, um, the, the nights that are late um, when I go in and I'm a bit uh, dozy and I'm not thinking straight and I try and insert a catheter and blast the, the, um, the struvite um, rock back back into the bladder so that I can affect flow. Um, those particular cases, I always um, go for about 20 minutes and then realise that I haven't put a little bit of local anaesthetic in first. I find that um, just uh, decreasing the, the spasm in the smooth muscle in the lining of the urethra um, releases the urethral grip on that stone and makes it a thousand times easier to um, just gently pass the urethral catheter and and uh, and establish flow from the bladder. And is there, with the catheterization, I, th- I think there's more. This is more of a personal preference. But is there any particular type of catheter that you find easier to use, or it's just that you've worked with one that um, seems to have done, done the trick. I definitely, uh, you know, the, the, the Tomcat catheters, the, the various uh, brands of those, the polypropylene catheters are the ones that I've traditionally used. But I've, in doing a bit of reading about it over the last um, year, I, there's a lot of talk about um, using the, the uh, soft red rubber um, type catheters that are maybe a little bit less um, rigid, um, but um, a little bit gentler to the the um, lining of the urethra. Do you have a preference, Brendan? I just use the same same of you as I haven't played recently with the with those red rub, rubber catheter ones. Yeah, I just use a I forget the brand name that I use, but yeah, it is just one of the Tomcat catheter variations. Yes, um, with them and using that local and, and and starting off gentle, flushing as I'm placing placing that catheter in there. What do you do if you can't unblock it and you have a blockage that's halfway along that that urethra or penis, apart from swearing? (laughs) Swearing quite a lot. Um, It's an interesting question that you ask because there is a certain number of these cats that will end up with a a perineal urethrostomy, but I I find that um, that is a relatively uncommon surgical procedure in my hands. Um, And... um, and generally, uh, with the vast majority of these cats, um, we're able to clear the blockage, um, and it's only maybe those repeat occurrences um, uh, and the ones that uh, we suspect there may be some scarring or um, some of those other things that uh, um, maybe there's been, um, despite the most careful, careful handling, a uh, um, a rent, a tear in the mucosa of the urethra. Um, they're the ones that we're looking at uh, uh, PUing them. And um, and so we don't do that surgery as often as I, you know, as you might expect, Brendan. Yes, I can't remember the last time I did one of those surgeries. And um, it's one of those surgeries that I always worried about um, because I think it's, it can get quite technical, can't it, to making sure that that... It's worked, so we don't um, that the little stent or the hole um, closes over, and then you're then you're having to go back in there. But um, yeah, I literally can't remember the last one that I did. Thank goodness. Um, with the with the um, 
bag of sand cases, the ones where we have those um, bladder stones, or um, what? what's your usual approach to those, Mark? Do you just put them on the dissolution diets and what success do you tend to get with doing that? Or do you jump in there and, and um, do the cystotomy? I, haven't, I can't ever tell you that I've done a cystotomy. I have um, had those cases where I would repeatedly flush and I think it's Walpole's solution when I first graduated that. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and we've certainly tossed those little, um, those little plastic bottles out um, if we... That's exciting. We're just getting some thunder and lightning here in Newcastle. Oh, I don't know what that was. I thought it was um, I thought it was Kate firing up the little leaf blower there, mate. Oh, well, the leaf blower will come to use tomorrow, Brendan. Once the um, the um, but uh, uh, um, we were yes the the um, sorry, Walpole solution. Um, do you say so you 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 can't remember the last surgery you did? You say so you. Dissolve them with yeah, the diet. Although we do a fair few where we would just run um, saline repeatedly into the bladder. We've established, put you know, place the urinary catheter, got it into the bladder, and we might um, fill the bladder, empty it, fill it, empty it, fill it, empty it. Um, and uh, pr- I think there's a lot of those ones that uh, that we we uh, manage to um, gradually diminish the amount of that gritty. Uh, Relatively beautiful crystal under the microscope, but certainly it, um, uh, uh, the, if we can lower the amount that's in the urine um, and then start uh, using the dissolution diets, that uh, definitely makes a difference. Yes. Um, my, the ones I've struggled with, Mark, are the ones where we've uh, I've placed them on the diet um, and... I'm hopeful that we'll get there with it, but it's it, it's tried to avoid the the, the pain and, and 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 cover the um well basically cover the pain while 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 things kick in there and and um, over those first two or three weeks until we get rid of that dysuria strangura with that cat. So, what do you usually send them home with, Mark? Um, once you've started the assuming um you've started them on those dissolution diets and we. We probably put in those ones on the antibiotics um, with those um, bladder stones. What what pain relief are we popping them on to go no, home? Well, I routinely use uh, buprenorphine uh, in those circumstances, Brendan. I um, have the doses uh, measured up and individually uh, made into um, you know uh, put into syringes, um, and uh, and we're getting the people to administer that to the um, just inside the lip to the uh, buccal mucosa um, and transmucosal absorption of uh, particular buprenorphine seems to be almost as effective as an injection and um, that generally gets us uh, through those few weeks. We have had a few patients that we would put fentanyl patches on um, and uh, those patches are extraordinarily useful um, in particular cases um, but um, but they're... Um, for longer periods, like you were talking about, where we've got to think about um, uh, several weeks, um, they're much more prone to uh, complication, addiction, uh, accidents. So we're, we're, we're generally depending on um, uh, buprenorphine. And how is that how many times, three times a day? or Yeah, it has an eight-hour duration of action in cats. So we're generally talking um, uh, maybe 
there are some cases we would drop to two, but most of the time we're looking at uh, three doses a day. Yes, and do you also recommend, and we did briefly mention this before, um, uh, Feely Way? We're big uh, Way fans. We um, use it in the consult rooms. We spray it on our uniforms. We have little pads in the consult room as well as just putting it in the air. We use it extensively in the cat ward of the hospital. Um, I have it at home, only metres from my foot at the moment plugged into the wall. Um, so I I am uh, um, an advocate for the the uh, calming effects and uh, anxiolytic effects of the, uh, the, the calming pheromones in Fellaway. Well, I think we're just about, um, well, we've covered covered most of the main points and I'm, I'm a bit worried, Mark, that am, with the I thunder am, that's going on I'm actually feeling that the NBN, our little copper network here in Newcastle, is going to um, suffer the effects of <laughs> an extreme and sudden dampening. So I, I, th- I think we may lose you um, shortly. Um, yes. So, um, well, in the in the minute or two we have left before before the storm kicks in, um, how, when do you schedule the revisits for these cases, and how how well do they do? There's, let's just stick to those idiopathic ones, so the less complicated ones that we that we don't have a confirmed urinary tract infection or, or, or bladder obstruction or, or, or a large percentage of um, urolists um, in the animal, um, how do they do? How well do they do? And, and when do you get them back? And, and what's your long-term recommendations and prognosis well, I think, for them? Um, I'm pretty happy to say that, um, that they go pretty well. Um, that uh, I think the vast majority of them, and, and there might be some people in the audience that are uh, saying right now that the literature suggests that they're going to go well no matter what you do. Um, but, um, but I think that they, uh, that, you know, we're pretty pleased that most of those simple cases, a little bit quicker than if you did nothing, we get them feeling more comfortable. Um, and I suppose that feeds into a problem because uh, the clients then don't see the need now that they've got the animal uh, urinating back to normal. They are, it's often one of our most difficult things to get people to come back in. And um, and so we're generally recommending that we have a look at them um, at any time that they're showing ongoing signs of uh, stranguria so that we can ensure we don't have them become blocked. Um, but um, but generally about uh, a week after we start treatment and then maybe three weeks after that, we'll invite the clients to return for a progress exam. We'll often put that in our original estimate. We're doing that more and more frequently um, because uh, uh, people are happy to pay that whole amount at the first instance, including those scheduled progress exams and then they seem to be much happier when they show up the progress exams and don't have to reach for their wallet, Brendan. Yes, because it's already prepaid and and perhaps they also look at that initial invoice and see that a post-operative consult has been scheduled or paid for already so they think, I want value for my money, so they come back. So I think that's part of it. So, um, yeah, the final thing I wanted you to quickly comment on, Mark, that we haven't touched on yet is those ones that are recurrent and these are those particularly nervous or, or stressed cats. Are, are they the ones that you then start considering um, reaching for 
uh, fluoxetine and the um, the um, the the other sort of medications, the anti-anxiety um, medications and behaviour modification drugs, and, and and even more than that, we um, we flatter ourselves that um, with a relatively short consult at the beginning we can do our Sherlock job and and identify the stresses that might be in that cat's life but I'm sure that uh, those recurrent ones um, we're not um, identifying the stresses and so we take our time um, we uh, do spend much more time looking at the you know holistically at the whole cat's life to see if we can identify the problem but we don't hesitate to use those anxiolytic medications um, uh, that uh, that are likely to um, limit the stress that the cat is under thank you i think you've um, answered that perfectly there mark and i'll tell you what i'm looking forward to visiting you soon and um seeing your little cat um, water fountain there, Mark, and um, I'll be heading off to um, do a little wee-wee shortly afterwards. We'll we'll Um, set you up in the guest bedroom right next to the bathroom. Yes. Yes. Well, there we go. Fluted cats, Mark. We've um, we've done that. We've probably only really scratched the surface, so to speak, um, for that particular topic. But um, I think it was a, a pretty common um, condition that's seen in, in veterinary practice and not just in our exotics world. And um, we have touched on um, urinary tract obstructions in some of our exotic pets and we'll cover some more of them in the future, Mark, won't we? So, yes, thank you all for listening and uh, we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.